name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Amen. Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudetu Jesus Christus. Welcome to the Meaning of Catholic. I'm Timothy S. Flanders. I'm joined by Meaning of Catholic contributor and Catholic author Kennedy Hall, as well as Catholic MD, Mr. Ethan Scott. Ethan, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Timothy. Yeah, great to have you. So Ethan was born and raised Catholic. He's had a reversion of the past year. Uh, wow. He received his medical degree from Northeastern, Northeast Ohio Medical University, and he works as a pediatrician serving special needs Amish children. He lives in Ohio, and his greatest accomplishment is his wife and his 10-month-old daughter. That's so right. it's great to have you on, Ethan. So we're going to talk about, now that the uh, COVID-1984 crisis has very much declined in publicity, but it is still being promoted. We're going to take a little bit of a uh, review of what we've learned a little bit about the crisis. And we're going to start by talking about the big pharma and the state of the medical community and medical science. Um, I wanted to talk to you, Ethan, because I'm a layman, but every, 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 you know, man, woman, and child has to talk to doctors, has to choose mm -hmm. doctors has to make medical decisions and they often get different opinions. And so, you know, even laymen such as myself or Kennedy who are not doctors and we have to make decisions about our uh, children and everything. So uh, one of the things that I've experienced personally is the way that the industry and my wife used to work in medical sales as well. So um, she has some experience in sort of the medical industry. And what I've observed is the just the impact of profiting and, and just sort of money making has become uh, such a strong power, it seems to me, in the medical industry, uh, where there's a preventative health clinic, for example, in my community, which mm -hmm. actually serves Amish, for example. But, you know, it, it uses preventative health techniques like you have a you have a problem. Uh, they they do a test on your your gut and your immune system and they suggest diet changes and things like that and uh, strengthening your immune system to help you combat something first instead of going straight to the pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. whereas and then what i've sort of gathered is that many many medical doctors in med school are basically taught to go straight to the med pharmaceuticals because the money is behind this big pharma industry they're the ones doing the studies they're the ones pushing that. So doctors are just taught that way. So they're not mm -hmm. taught about these other things. So what is your impression? You, you're, you're now one year as an MD, you're out of residency. Uh, you've been through the whole industry, the whole system, and now you're working with Amish children. What is your impression of just the medical industry? Uh, do you think I'm seeing that accurately? What do you think? Yeah, I think there's, there's so many different levels to it you know from starting with your physician who's out in the community who is striving to serve their patients and then you start to work up through larger medical organizations and the hierarchy that gets implemented there all the way up into you know pharmaceutical companies whose 
job is to develop new innovative medications to hopefully decrease suffering. And I think it's important as you go into medicine, you kind of have an idea of what medicine is. And then after the, your training is done, you have a chance to, for the first time, really reflect back over the past, what ends up being at, at least a decade of training and to really kind of ask the question, you know, what's true medicine. So for me, I mean, over the past year, um, the answer to that has really been, it's, it's the practice and art of caring for the patient with charity and the, the utmost respect for their human dignity by using advances in science prudently mm. to prevent and combat suffering. So kind of working from that framework, you try to start to, to Can you just repeat that definition real quick. That was, mm -hmm. was that your own definition of true medicine? That is my own. That's, that's great. That's beautiful. Just repeat that one more time. That, that was beautiful. So for me, it's the, the practice and art of caring for the patient in front of you with charity and respect for their human dignity by using advances in science prudently to prevent and combat suffering. That's okay. good. That's great. So I, I one of so the big the key key word I heard there was prudently. Can you describe uh, what what is a prudent? Because I, obviously there's we. I mean no no one no one here will reject all the great advances in science. I mean mm -hmm. our fathers, our fa we can idealize the past in certain ways, but our fathers died you know much younger than we do. They they mm -hmm. were faced with a lot more disease. You know, uh, they weren't able to combat certain diseases as well as we can. So there's certainly a great deal of advances. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you see it as, what, how would you see using advances prudently and using advances imprudently? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, with prudence, it really is doing the right thing at the right time. And you know, with the, the patient plays a large part in that. And so as you go through medicine and you get more and more autonomy you realize quickly how many potential tools you have at your fingertips and it's as simple as putting an order in and you can get the medication, you can get the lab, you can get the imaging that you want. And so there definitely is a temptation as new advances come out to enact them right away. Right. And as you go through training, you quickly see how easy it is to be very confident in your decision-making and feel sure about the diagnosis only to have it disproven eight hours later by someone who came along and looked at it differently. And so you're humbled pretty quickly. Um, and with that, as you get farther out on your own and are having to make those decisions just between you and the family, um, you really need to look at the evidence that's there um, and try to practice first in an evidence-based way uh, where there's not just one article or one paper, but that there's been repeated proven efficacy of what you're going to do. And if there's not at least good rationale as to what you're going to ask a family to potentially subject their child to. And then a lot of it is, is taking in the, the patient's wishes about their care. Uh, so, 
for example, most of our patients are self-pay. And so what the evidence might suggest is to do, you know, an MRI and a few thousand dollars of testing, but right. the family's income is $20,000 a year with eight kids and no insurance. And so then you start to have to mold those guidelines to the individual patient and try to come to some understanding about the give and take about the potential risks you're willing to take as the physician and then what risks the family is willing to take um, as you start to make those compromises in the in the decision making and that's you know where the art comes in that's awesome yeah. kennedy you got any thoughts on that well, that's great i mean um what a refreshing approach. I need a family doctor. How far is your eyes Ohio from uh, Stratford? About 10 or 12 hours, maybe? But so uh, that have driven up from, I can think of some that came up from 16, 17 hours away. Well, <laughs> well this is one of the myths about, sorry, but this is one of the myths about the Canadian healthcare system. It's not utopia. And mm -hmm. uh, I, it took me almost six years to find a family doctor. Um, I don't go to the doctor very often. Part of that stoicism, part of that stupidity. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, when I finally found one, my wife was able to find one quickly with our children because um, there's just once you have children, they just anyway, it's priority, whatever. But um, you know, I was and, and we don't have a walk-in clinic in the town that we live in. Mm -hmm. You have to go to the emergency room. Um, so you know, anyway, I I've, I drive about forty-five minutes to an hour if I want to see a doctor. Anyway, mm -hmm. so how it goes here yeah. it's, it's tough to find a good catholic doctor yes yeah we hard. found we found an amazing one for my wife for like uh for you know for having babies he's pro-life mm -hmm. he's a pro-life guy he actually uh speaks at conferences about like uh national family planning and things like that he knows his stuff and he's all about open to life and stuff so he's been wonderful for us but, that's great Great. I, I'm interested, Ethan, in, in you unpacking further as well the preventative, because um, you, your definition had um, <clears throat> both prevent and combat. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, like I said, in my experience, the, the general practitioners that I've uh, dealt with is just kind of, do you smoke? Okay, don't drink too much alcohol and do your exercise. Okay, you know, um, and I've so could you unpack a little bit more? I mean, is, am, I, am I right in perceiving that the medical industry, big pharma or whatever, the, the money that's, that's driving the studies and the textbooks that med students read are basically sort of on a combat model rather than a preventative because the combat has more profit in it. Is that an accurate assumption or am I off base there? No, I think the farther I get, out of med school uh, in reflection, I, I do think there's there's definitely a part of that because our Amish families really value a natural approach. Uh, and so most of them are pretty resistant to pharmaceutical intervention as, as a first line approach. And I have to be honest with them. Most times I, I tell them like, I'm not a, a natural doctor. I didn't go to school and get that expertise. I went and I learned what medications can can fight disease a lot of times after it's already there. And so I just try to be transparent with them that, that it's really not what I learned in school or um, throughout residency. 
it just wasn't the focus of the the standardized exams that you have to take throughout to get to the next level. So with the prevention though, uh, there are a lot of things that we do. So our clinic uh, is a little different. It exclusively takes care of kids that have special needs and most of them have inherited complex genetic disorders. And we can get some buy-in though from our families for pretty simple things like dietary interventions um, for different metabolic disorders that can really reduce hospital stays and prevent pretty catastrophic bills from piling up. Um, there's, I, I'm in general uh, an advocate for vaccines. I think it's one of the, the best tools that we have to keep kids out of the hospital. Um, I've seen pretty tragic things from diseases I never thought I would see um, that I thought were vaccine preventable. So yeah, that's those are the things that, that we focus on, kind of regular checkups and not waiting until you're sick and your rare disease has decompensated, uh, maximizing dietary interventions when we can, and then simple preventative things such as vaccines. Yeah, that's great. I, I've personally experienced uh, a massive, uh, I mean, this is just anecdotally one person, obviously, but um, the effect of the effect of the preventative health um, can be effective. And, I, and not to say that pharmaceuticals are I've certainly uh, can be good. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of good ones. It's just, um, yeah, like you said, like certain vaccines or whatever. Um, I don't have a strong opinion about that. But I'm I take ibuprofen times, you know, I take, I take drugs that have been, that have been, uh, you know, over the counter stuff that, that have been developed that, uh, do good. Um, what, what is the state? Uh, it, there's uh Kennedy, maybe you can, you can unpack the, uh, the decline of science. I think that it, it, from my view, I think it's really begins with Descartes when he denies philosophically back in the 1700s, I think therefore I am, which basically denies that you can, you can observe something with your eyes and rely that that thing is true. Uh, it would be, to me, that's the denial of all science right there. Cause to me, science is observing something and observing that it happens in some kind of pattern and observing the cause and effects. But when you start to deny that there's these cause and effects philosophically, then you start to lose contact with reality and uh, the decline in faith and the sacraments just dumbs that intellect down anymore. So Kennedy, this is, this is your big point. You want to make it? <laughs> sure. So when, and Tim and I, you guys, we did the first show we did together was about evolutionary theory. And I know people come down on different sides on that, but I saw a lot of holes in the approach to how the data was found basically. And I'd never had a strong opinion on it. But then I started looking at things and I was thinking to myself, okay, I mean, I know that there is a way to infer from certain processes. I know there's a way to look at data and then sort of fill in the gaps, I guess. But there was a lot of st big stretches being made and there was a lot of discrepancy in the way that tons of different schools of thought would look at the same data and they'd infer different things from it. And the textbooks were variant and et cetera. And I thought there's gotta be a, uh, it is, there's no there's no way this is like objective empirical in the sense that 
we can stamp it and say this is how it was. So I started looking into things like that, which made me have to read a lot of, I had never read a lot of scientific literature, but it made me have to read a ton of it. One thing I realized is, is that um, for one, there's a huge proponent of atheism within uh, not all the sciences, um, but specifically ones that deal with uh, biology and chemistry. Physicists have a higher belief in God for some reason. I think it's because they deal in mathematics a lot, and mathematics is hard and objective for the most part until you get into theoretical stuff. But anyway, I was looking through a lot of these things, and I was having these debates and talking to these these folks, and and um, we would get into these logical corners, and we get to the point where they would go, um, well, we don't use philosophy in science. And I know they probably have done the philosophy of science as one of their courses or something like that. But I would start to talk about these philosophical principles, you know, like first principles, you know, you can't give what you don't have. If I don't have sight, I can't give sight to my offspring, that sort of thing. That's just basic Thomism. And they didn't have a vocabulary for it. Okay. And I realized that uh, when you look back on the glorious tradition of the sciences in the Catholic faith, St. Albert the Great, who was St. Thomas Aquinas' teacher, for example, they have a top-down approach. It's God as creator. There's some mystery there, which we're never going to know for sure until, God willing, we're in the beatific vision, right? But it's top down. It's There's order to the universe, which uh, I can't remember the gentleman. Maybe you might know his name, Ethan, but he was uh, he was one of the major uh, breakthroughs in heart surgery. Um, and he was a Catholic because he had basically was they were just trying to fix these issues that kept coming up. And anyone's guess was as good as anyone else's guess. But he thought, you know what? Veins seem to me like they would work like the ocean or they work like rivers and tributaries because I see that in God's design. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll see that in the human body. So we had this idea of they all go to the source and they flow, you know, the way that rivers go in to the, to salinate the water, etc. And he had this idea of just from observing nature and it turned out to be correct. And he saved the person and it was a revolutionary thing, but it was a top down approach. He looked at the creation and he saw order there because it came from a creator. And then he was able to infer from there that that order would be the mark of God in his creation, right? So, but unfortunately, um, we've lost this conception of God as in general in our society. And it's, in my opinion, it's found its way into a lot of the sciences, um, which I think uh, combining with, we know that it's a, it's a doctrine of the faith that when somebody is in a state of mortal sin, their intellect can't be as sharp as it is when they're in a state of grace because your intellect's in your soul. Your soul's dead, your mind's dead, essentially, right? Obviously, you can still be smart, but there's going to be a lack of wisdom there. And that word that you used, um, Ethan, when you said prudence, there's definitely going to be a lack of prudence. So if we look around at how um, uh, we, we'll get into this coronavirus thing in a minute, but when we look at how they're speaking about how we're going to treat people, you know, I, I was hearing about uh, in Italy and... Um, thinking of putting the kids in these like plastic cubicles when they go back to school and things it's just crazy stuff i mean i'm thinking but i'm looking i'm going they're saying well our medical experts i'm like well your medical experts whoever they are they don't know what a human being is you know <laughs> they don't know what a human person is um and then we see this with well you know we we uh we look at people like utilitarian well if we have a large percentage of people dying that's bad rather than saying what percentage of people is dying? What is life worth anyway? We're all going to die, so perhaps we should look at things in a more long view sense. Anyway, that's my long-winded way of saying combination of the lack of seeing the creator, the proliferation of mortal sin and a dead intellect, 
and then losing a conception of what the human person is for as a result. I think that's something that we've seen in, in the sciences and medicine. Yeah. So, so yeah, Ethan, do you, what do you see as, uh, it, you know, there's the, one of the buzzwords is the scientific community, this, the scientific community, that, uh, is, is there is such a thing as the scientific community? Uh, and, and is there, where's the objectivity? How objective is this scientific community? Yeah, I think, you know, that wherever you go and whatever specialty you pursue, there's definitely some level of community there. And then leaders that end up rising to the top, either through merit or politics, who end up having, you know, pretty significant say who can lead research and sometimes it's you know very pure and well done for the best of intentions and sometimes you know if you don't have people who are can realize that faith is completely superior to your senses and your own reason that you can quickly get off course so I don't know. I down here in Amish country, I don't feel like I'm always part of this big, large scientific medical community with me and one other pediatrician. Um, and so a lot of times we feel pretty remote and isolated. My viewpoint might be a lot different if I was at say a big academic center. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that uh, science, science in general, uh, declines in objectivity in proportion as the subject matter of the science bears upon your moral life. Exactly. So if, if we're just studying the color of frogs and we're debating about whether or not this is a species of frog from this family or that family, I think that most anybody in mortal sin could probably be pretty objective about that because it has no bearing on your moral life. But then when we start talking about evolution and we talk about transgenderism and whatever perception whatever all this other stuff then yeah. then the objectivity goes out the window and science scientific science becomes an ideology where it's being funded then you have you know you have a study about mm -hmm. this and a studies show this and studies show that but really it's just money trying to justify one's own sexual uh immorality you know, or models show this yeah. or models show that. Yeah, <laughs> there is a lot of there's a lot of pressure. Um, definitely is an individual physician or provider that the assumption is, is that you're going to automatically join some of these larger organizations, um, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics or American Academy of Family Physicians or whatever specialty you have. And so when you start taking back, just taking a step back and looking at their what studies they're pushing and what their position papers are and a lot of times you quickly realize that they're completely in contradiction with the the faith and morals you hold as a catholic and that you know it was the assumption that you would just continue to pay your dues um annually into these various organizations that um you really have to take a step back and say if you know if one of my patients came up to me and asked like oh do you endorse this paper from such and such academy uh you'd have to 
you'd have to say no or else you right. I, you'd just be going against everything that you state to believe in um, when you're at church on Sunday. Right. And that, and that's, and that the key point right there, the key thing that you're, Ethan, that you're making is that that is not a data empirical based approach. Mm-hmm. It is pure ideology. It's not mm-hmm. like, okay, let's debate about the merits of this data and, and this experiment. We're not, that's mm-hmm. not at all what's going on. You're just, are you in, or are you out in this news speak ideology? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think that we've seen, I think, so getting into more of the specifics, <clears throat> I think that in my opinion, I think we definitely see the irrationality of the media driven profiteering medical science community or whatever, with the contrast between allowing the rioters and the, you know, the social distancing. I saw that one, one, uh, one thing that was going around Twitter was the, um, no more than 12 person social gathering no more than yeah. 100 person protesting. That's the, that's the guidelines. And so somebody was like, well, I'm going to have a hundred person protest in my backyard, bring all your <laughs> arguments and we're going to hash them out, have a big protest in my backyard. So uh, I think, I think that's interesting. So I, let's talk a little bit more specifics, Ethan, um, mm-hmm. because can you, I, I've got the numbers here for the hospitalizations and mm-hmm. uh that was something that you expressed when we were talking before we went on the air that you thought was a very good indicator uh, about um, the uh, the flu. But before we do that, I wanted if you can just talk a little bit briefly about when this thing first started. How did you start to evaluate it as as a professional physician? How did you start to evaluate the data and try to figure out what's going on? How did you approach that? And then we can talk about kind of your your conclusions regarding hospitalizations since then Mm -hmm. yeah so at the beginning it was difficult right there was very limited data and the reports and they were then not many were evidence driven or if they were it was one paper here one paper there seemed like there could be a pretty legitimate threat and so looking at our patient population all having complex medical needs. I was in favor of a pretty stringent lockdown for a brief period of time, just to give us a couple weeks to sort out what was going on, how virulent the virus actually was. Were the hospitals going to be completely overwhelmed like there was concern for, but only long enough to give hospitals a chance to mobilize the resources and give us a chance to try to assess the literature that was coming out on the severity of the virus, nothing prolonged. Um, And so I thought, you know, we were looking at our hospitalization day by day here in Ohio, they spiked around mid-March and were consistently trending down by Easter, which at that point it seemed completely reasonable to say, okay, We've met our goal. Hospitals have had a chance to see how they're able to access resources. We've had a chance to start to look at the data. You know, is this coronavirus different from all the other coronaviruses that you take care of, you know, year after year? And so, you know, as far as where we would go for um, resources to try to tease that out, uh, the best 
website, the one that I go to all the time is called PubMed. Um, and so we don't, we don't look at the news. We don't have TV at home. We don't have internet access at home. Um, again, to try to preserve, you know, and make sure what we're looking at is intentional and not biased. And so we, we went to PubMed and, you know, started to do a literature search to see what the early re results were. And we were glad that we supported the lockdown for our patients because in the early reports there were um, in children, although the symptoms for the most case were mild in kids with complex medical issues, they, it was more severe. There were more ICU admissions like you'd expect. Right. Um, but then, you know, as you start to get into April and May and to try to get a little bit better sense of, okay, how does this really compare to something like influenza that we see year in and year out? Um, it's tough. Do you look at the case count? Do you look at the death rate or death total? Or do you look at hospitalization rate? And you can, you know, use statistics however you want, but the, the problems with looking at the case count per day is it's easy to, to get an inflated number. All you have to do is start testing a bunch of people and you can get your total cases to shoot up overnight. And that doesn't mean that the true morbidity in your community is any higher than it was 24 hours ago. You just know that more people have it. And then to look at the total number of deaths as kind of a crude death rate of fatalities per confirmed cases. Again, on the flip side, if you're not testing that much, you can get an inflated um, death rate. And to calculate true fatality rate, it's hard. I mean, it's stats that are, are beyond me. So I wanted a marker that would, that was a better reflection of the morbidity that we are seeing in the community. And so that's why hospitalization uh, rate seemed to be um, the one that, that best fit that what we were looking for and because you don't get admitted to the hospital because you test positive for corona you only get admitted to the hospital because you have things like hypoxia or increased work of breathing so 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 let me just uh and help help me understand so you, you're saying mm -hmm. so i get i get what you're saying about the the testing because mm -hmm. and that was the biggest i think and that's why I still I still hear uh, like on the mainstream like NPR they're still saying mm -hmm. well now we've got a million deaths now we've got mm -hmm. such and such cases and and the, mm -hmm. the, they always have the graph the graph is like oh the cases are going up they're going up they're going up they will so, continue to go up yeah so so yeah so you're saying um, the cases doesn't really the number of cases doesn't really indicate the severity because only whatever. 1% and less, mostly less than 1% mm -hmm. even die of the coronavirus. So a bunch of people having it is not uh, a true indication. Um, now, why would the death, the number of deaths not uh, matter? Is it because there needs to be a proportion of those deaths to patients? Is that what, why that just a graph? Because, you know, one, one of the graphs is just number of deaths. So that's always just continuing to go up every, you know, it'll always go up. So it'll just be added to the previous deaths. And uh, why is, why are the deaths only, why is that not a good indicator? Yeah. I, again, because it's, 
what I feel like people quickly want to jump to when they look at the total number of deaths is try to get an understanding of what their likelihood of dying from it is. And so they take the number of positive cases and they take the number of deaths and they divide the number of deaths by the number of cases and say, okay, like there's a, there's a 5% chance I'm going to die from this if I get it. And again, the, the stats are a little bit beyond um, what I do and but it's, I do know that that isn't a, an accurate representation of your, your true risk of, of dying from Corona. Yeah. Can I speak to the stats for a sec? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm not a, actually, I never took stats and everybody I know that is a total, I don't know, secular person. They all had to take stats and all of their psych and social and whatever degrees they did. I did languages. Mm -hmm. But none of them know how to do statistics. So I'm wondering if that's my, my I'm just joking a little bit, but my conspiracy yeah. meter goes off. I'm like, maybe they made them not know how to, anyway. So, <laughs> it's in every health side degree, every social, like all these things I never took. I was a nerd reading Spanish poetry mm -hmm. and things. But, but I know how to do basic arithmetic. Mm -hmm. And I know how to use my common sense. And once again, I think this comes back to what I was saying, like, People don't know how to think straight, you know, because uh, Peter Crafe, the great Catholic philosopher, he said, you know, he basically says sin makes you stupid. You know, mm -hmm. if you can't if you can't see God and you can't see what the person is for, then it's hard to look at the world properly. So really quickly, if I Google right now and I just did it, is coronavirus worse than the flu? Mm -hmm. The first thing that comes up is still that thing from the WHO saying that it was a 3.4 death rate. Mm hmm. Now it says, and, and to, in fairness to the WHO, as maniacal as they can be with you know pro pro death things, but in fairness to what has actually written, it does say about three three point four percent of reported COVID cases have died. So right. they didn't actually come out and say three point four percent of people who get it die. Right. They, they didn't say that. In fairness to them, but obviously that turned into that. Mm -hmm. so when this whole thing started, I remember thinking, okay. Everybody's saying this thing is the most contagious thing since the Black Plague, mm -hmm. which means that everybody and, – and I know it takes about 10 days for a virus to travel the globe. I was looking into what the epidemiologists say because of travel and things. So I'm sitting here in Canada where we have thousands and thousands of people coming back and forth mm -hmm. from hotspots, Italy, Spain, and China every day, which is the same in America. Um, and they didn't shut down anything here in, in, in Ontario until March 14th, I think it was, mm -hmm. or it was March uh, – yeah, Martin 14, 16, whatever. And I know, and now we know from uh, some testimonials from some labs that have retested things from the late fall because they mm -hmm. the tests had come back as negative for flu, but they had all the flu symptoms. Right. So they anyway, they didn't test for corona. Now they look back and they've reassessed things. Oh, we've got, and I think it was in the BBC, so not some fringy Alex Jones thing, but just mainstream secular stuff. And it was, you know, Corona case found from like November 17th or something like that in BBC. The point is, it's been around for months. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's fine. But so, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to look at something similar. So I looked at the Canadian charts on causes of death each year. And I would imagine it's similar in the States because we have similar demographics. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the causes of death and there's about first... 10 or so it's everything you'd expect you know it's dementia heart disease you know all the major things cancers and whatever number five or six is what uh, it's called flu and pneumonia deaths and i thought that was interesting because they're recognizing that uh whether it's a uh, flu which is a, a specific flu virus or a coronavirus that gives them what we might call the cold the problem is when it 
and when it devolves into something that's really hard on the lungs, which causes the person to essentially suffocate. And I think that's why they have the category of flu and pneumonia. So that makes sense to me just as a mm-hmm. layperson looking at. It. Now, the next category underneath that, though, is uh, lower respiratory tract illnesses or something like that. And basically includes severe uh, chronic bronchitis, uh, emphysema, and very bad asthma. That's kind of there. Now, I'm sitting back and I'm looking at that and I'm going, those diseases are very common in the elderly, of course. Smokers mm-hmm. after a long time will get emphysema, asthma over time, especially with the climate we have here in Canada, depending if you're a lot of pollution, it gets severe. Chronic bronchitis, you know, you go into a nursing home, there's people that are coughing all the time and it's developed. Mm-hmm. So that's about 13,000 deaths every year in Canada alone. So those two of them, you get 19, you get 21,000 deaths. Mm-hmm. Just in Canada from those things. Anyway, I did the math on that. And the flu is, it's in, in Canada, is 23 per 100,000. Right now, the coronavirus is at 20 out of 100,000, just the crude mathematics. Mm-hmm. So I just, the number, I started doing the numbers and I said, you know, we can say what we want. Okay, is it extra nasty? Maybe it's extra nasty, right? Like yeah. Maybe you feel really crappy and that's mm-hmm. no fun. But as far as if I'm going to leave my house and go, you know, do whatever, what's my risk of dying? It's very, very low. And then one last thing, I'll stop ranting, but there was a lot of research in the beginning that asymptomatic people weren't a threat, mm-hmm. but it wasn't acknowledged by the big mainstream bodies. It was a lab here, a lab there, a country that we don't like here or there, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but now the WHO has come out and said asymptomatic people are, it's very unlikely. And that matches the flu too. When you look up the flu uh, statistics, Roughly mm-hmm. 50 to 70% of people can have mild to no symptoms. Right. Um, at one point, I was actually thinking, I thought some devious, I was like, did they just copy and paste the flu page to the Corona page on the, <laughs> on the, on the Ontario website? It was the same. Um, so I'm looking at it, I'm going, okay, I get the first two weeks. Mm-hmm. I was always a little skeptical because that's kind of how I am. Yeah. But, but I said, okay, fine. I get the logic of it. We've been bathing in this virus for uh, months now. Um Flu season always, you know, you get 150 deaths before Christmas, then you get 7,000 between January and April. That's just how it peaks. Makes mm-hmm. sense to me. So I, I did a tweet the other day and I said, I'm old enough to remember when um, totalitarianism was called two weeks to slow the spread. But the point being, I understood the logic of let's do this. But then after that, I even then, l- late March, I'm going, there's no sense to this anymore. I mean, we've, we've flattened the curve, whatever that means, and we're in the clear. Mm-hmm. So it's time to get back to work. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, we were, I was definitely in favor of after that, like you said, probably the first week of April here Yeah. Um, to, to get, to get people back to work, um, to prevent the ramifications that we're, we're seeing now um, after people have been exposed to nothing but negativity perpetually for 10 or 11 weeks um, and how they've habituated that negativity um, and how they are viewing everything. Um, so yeah, looking at the the hospitalization rate, so comparing the coronavirus by age group to the influenza hospitalization rate over averaged over the last four years. So yeah, I, I want to, let me uh, preface this, this here. Yep. So this is, so I want to understand this data here. So the, first of all, this yeah. is from the CDC. So this mm-hmm. is from mainstream people here. Mm-hmm. And as I understand this, Ethan, so this is the average 
influenza hospitalizations. So you, you get sick enough, you go to the hospital. That's this data here. Um, yeah. And and that's the average of what the flu does. And that's the average over the past four years. Can or, I just ask a question before you continue, yeah. just so I can understand it better, Ethan? Is this um, people who are in the hospital who have tested positive for it or they're they're hospitalized because of the symptoms that pertain to this this illness? Right. So these are confirmed cases who are hospitalized. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they got they, they got okay. the cases. They're they're lab tested. It's it's a true case of the flu, mm -hmm. and they're hot. They have symptoms severe enough to be hospitalized. So it's, right. it's making a it's it is a severe risk of some kind or a serious risk to their health. They're hospitalized, and this is so. For example, zero to four years old. So this influenza stat of one hundred and three point five is simply saying that's the average per year hmm. of flu patients who are hospitalized. Per year, 103. Am I right per, about per per 100,000 people? Okay, you're right. For, per 100,000 people, so that's per year per 100,000 people. That's the average for the flu, and then the the three number for the corona. That's is that just so far that we've had this year? Is that what that yeah, is? So that would be. Um, so this data was from essentially early March to mid May, and it mm -hmm. would be. So, for example, in zero to four, it'd be the cases of confirmed coronavirus who were hospitalized. So, three per 100,000 lab confirmed corona cases compared to 103 for confirmed cases of influenza. That's crazy. Now, is hospitalization, Ethan, does a hospitalization mean, I haven't been able to figure this out. Does it mean they've visited the hospital and been treated, or does it mean they have to stay there? My interpretation is that they were admitted to to like a, a general medical floor or the ICU. Okay, so they're not necessarily. So it could be you go in and you are treated for four or five hours, and you go mm -hmm. home. And it could also be you're in a bed for two, three days. So this this would be actually admitted and like you're you're staying overnight, not just oh, okay. like an ER visit and you you leave. So. So there'd be even more of people who are just really sick. They go and they get a prescription for a puffer or something like that and go mm -hmm. home. Okay. Right. Yeah. And this, yeah. this would include them. So here's, so, so for, for listeners, uh, we have, so zero to four years old, Corona three, influenza 103.5. So, so then we have five to 17 year olds, Corona 1.5. Influenza 32. That's crazy. And then we have 18 to 49 year olds, Corona 37.2, Influenza 45. So it's pretty close among mm -hmm. the kind of 20 and middle aged kind of people. So it's pretty close there. So then, then when we get to the more elderly people, so we have 50 to 65 years old, we have Corona 94, Influenza 153. So it's still kind of close there too. But then 65 plus. Then it goes to Corona one ninety two, and influenza six thirty three. So a factor of roughly three times more flu hospitalizations than Corona, at that point. Yeah, yeah. So that would be exactly hospitalization rate per hundred thousand people that are laboratory confirmed. Um, that's crazy. That's that's when you think about the. Uh, 
you know, one, one thing I've been holding on the whole time is, hey, I'll respect the whole elderly vulnerable thing, which, hey, my no, 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 God rest their soul. They were in nursing homes the last couple of years of their life. It'd be on, it would be on quarantine for a week at a time here and there. There was mm-hmm. outbreaks of, of whatever. I mean, it was, it could have been a bad cold, but if you're all 87 years old, that's risky, right? So, um, so I was, I, I thought about the elderly thing, but when I saw these numbers, I thought, wow, that's, the, the flu looks, in my opinion, what we're seeing with the math here, math is not politically correct. Uh, it just looks like it's not what they're saying. You know, I don't know what else to think from it. So so if we were to, if, if we just, let's say the, the coronavirus never existed and what we did this this past flu season is, is every day we had a graph of the number of flu cases and we also had a graph of the number of through deaths. And everybody saw that graph every single day, and the news talked about it every single day. Well, today we have a hundred more deaths in the United States from the flu. Today we got a thousand more deaths. Oh, we got a spike in the death rate from flu. I mean, I can imagine that this would be pretty scary, even if it was the flu. I mean, we all know the flu, but if they just rehearsed the same thing that they did with coronavirus, and they just did the same thing for the flu this year, people would be pretty scared yeah it's fascinating because that's what i i don't try to scare people but it is for whatever reason difficult to get across the severity of the flu to patients um in hopes that they get the flu shot it's not perfect it's not by any means a cure-all but it does definitely prevent the number of hospitalizations and severe illnesses and it's, it's such a hard sell. Like I'll use these same numbers um, and we'll look at, all right, here's how many kids have passed away from the flu this year. And it's, it's interesting in that setting, it doesn't seem to have an effect. So I guess it is just the day in day out message of hearing it from all sides that has got people's attention. Now, Ethan, could you explain for us, um, Mm -hmm my layman term of talking about this, I'll use the term critical mass, but essentially it seems to me that even you know, flu season is roughly between, well, Northern hemisphere. So they're going to, st- and this tangent a little quick, they're going to start seeing huge increases in the Southern hemisphere. And they're mm-hmm. going to start using that to say, look, it's not gone. Well, it's the winter down there. So people mm-hmm. can do that. <laughs> it's a matter of how the sun works. Yeah. They're, okay? they're, they're, they're so you're dealing with the coronavirus now. before everybody. Yeah. Because it was the summer. And now it's going to get colder and they're going to see second spikes unless they don't record it for political reasons. But anyway, so, um, sorry, cold and flu season, maybe it's cause it's when it's cold, but so, um, it seems to me when I look at the statistics by around fourth month or so in, you know, we get into late February, early March. If I look at the global, yeah, for all the various viruses going around that year, this year with the H1N1 was actually around, I think it was, or was it influenza A? I can't remember, but it's it's one of them. But you, can, you see these peaks for about two or three weeks mm-hmm. for one of them. And then a couple of weeks later, you see a peak for a different one. Mm-hmm. But they all seem to get to this point where they do have this like critical mass where they kind of bottleneck and overflow. Is mm-hmm. that what we've seen with the coronavirus? And could you explain perhaps how that happens in a population? Yeah, I, I hope that is, you know, what we see with coronavirus as you start to hit, you know, number of people who have been infected, who've developed adequate immunity and number of people who've 
received a vaccine and developed immunity. And there are viruses that are much more um, weather and climate dependent. It's tough with coronavirus. Um, you know, there's several different strands of coronavirus that circulate and they aren't as easy to predict um, just from a seasonality standpoint and climate standpoint as as influenza is. So I'm not sure if we're, we'll see that that same that same thing happen again. Um, but there does seem to be with coronavirus and not just this one, just as a family of viruses in general, they don't follow uh, those exact same predictable patterns year in and year out. And what, what do you see, Ethan, as, uh, if you could speak more to, what are the real risks of coronavirus? Because there are, I, obviously, we're, like we're saying, there is definitely real risk with the flu. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you can see from the data and the literature that's available? What are the real risks that you think that we should be aware of and we should take caution about? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's no doubt it's a, it's a, very serious strain of coronavirus. I took care of plenty of kids throughout residency who had various strains of coronavirus, and some of them were hospitalized for a couple of days. Some of them were in the ICU. It seems like with this strain, you definitely end up having more in the ICU. As time goes on, you know, there's I think there's a good chance that you know we could see um, you know it come back in the in the fall, and so asking ourselves, okay, yep, there's a there's a good chance that at some point I'm going to feel crummy and have a headache and sore throat and fever. Um, what, you know, how much of your life are you willing to sacrifice to avoid that? And knowing that, yeah, there are going to be people who die a natural death by contracting the virus. Um, and you'd encourage anyone with high-risk medical conditions to you know, take uh, precautions, you know, such as staying at home, social distancing, those are all valid. If they feel like wearing a mask offers protection to them and can give them some peace of mind, that's great. Um, but I pray that we don't see another lockdown like we, like we did. Can we ask, just quick, can I ask a question about masks? So I have mm -hmm. a, I have. I know they were are very good in an acute setting. I understand the logic of that mm -hmm. and the N95. It makes sense. I mean, for anything, I, I know that Ebola, mm -hmm. tuberculosis, and one other one. We know that they're airborne. It's been mm -hmm. validated, so it's important in that setting. Mm -hmm. I get that. But we have a friend who um, had survived a serious cancer with you know chemo and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And actually, her doctor and, and they might differ in opinions here, but her doctor had said, "Don't wear masks." Uh, when she, even she was compromised because he said it was a risk reward sort of thing. Mm -hmm. She needed more oxygen. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and people just by nature, they're not used to wearing masks. They're not scrubbing mm -hmm. in and scrubbing out. They're just like putting it on and lighting a cigarette and driving their car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so it was just, there was a lot of, he said, you're going to touch your face so much that you're mm -hmm. actually going to be more likely to contract things uh, even though people might say for an immune, immunocompromised person wear a mask. That doctor who's dealing with cancer patients actually said no. So what would you say to the, to the effectiveness of masks in daily life? Yeah, I have not seen any literature that would at this point sway me to make a recommendation to wear a mask in the general public. 
Right. I just haven't seen it. Um, so if it's out there and maybe it will, and I think that's important is with any, any one of these things, it's so easy to become very attached to the judgment you've made about the situation. Um, and in the face of potentially good evidence three months down the road. So if it, if a really well done study comes out two months from now that says, oh yeah, hospitalization rates go down, your risk of mortality goes down and it's well done. Like I'm open to that. I just haven't seen it to this point to, to say that that's what everyone should be doing. It's why as a family, when we go out, I thought it was going to protect my wife or protect my parents when we saw them or my little girl, I would, I would have us do it, but I just haven't. It'd be hard to do a big study on that. I would imagine too, right? Like taking, it just be a lot of factors. There'd be a lot of, yeah, there'd be a lot yeah. of confusing factors. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit more specifics and we're going to get to also the communion controversy in a few minutes too. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, um, yeah, more about specific treatments because uh, Ethan, you know vaccines, you advocate for vaccines. There's a vaccine for the flu, um, but it's, it's, like you said, it's not perfect. Bill Gates, who makes money off of vaccines, wants us all to lock down until he can give us his vaccine. Uh, <laughs> but there's a, and obviously there are also unethical vaccines. Obviously they're mm -hmm. killing, killing children to make their vaccine. So that's obviously out already. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no compromise there whatsoever. But um, what do you see as uh, what one of our viewers is asking? Cause I mean, the flu is not as scary because mm -hmm. there are there is a flu vaccine there's ways to prevent it but the coronavirus is more unknown we know less about it um what do you see at, and then there's also the hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. if i'm saying that right mm -hmm. um what do you see as uh potential treatments um do you think we should lock down until there's a vaccine uh what are your thoughts yeah so i i would not recommend it locking down until there's a vaccine for really for um, two, two primary reasons. So one of the vaccines that has gotten a lot of um, attention has been the um, vaccine that finished up a phase one trial um, from the company Moderna. And it's a mRNA vaccine. And yeah, the, the cell line that it's from, um, was derived from um, formerly aborted um, babies. And so taking that out of the picture and can stamp it as problematic right there. Um, the, the technology that it is, is it's an mRNA vaccine, which just, it's different from vaccines that are out on the market right now. And I have a lot of hope and excitement about the potential for RNA vaccines. I think that they could do a really good job of eliciting a good immune response and providing good protection and potentially being relatively easy to mass produce. However, we, we don't have one out on the market yet. So I would hate to see something pushed through and rushed um, where the safety data isn't already there and potentially compromise what could be a very promising vaccine um, by kind of unforeseen 
consequences and adverse effects early on. I mean, that would be unfortunate for how much work has gone into the development of, of RNA vaccines. Um, and let me let me just provide an objection for you to answer to mm-hmm. as well, because there are I mean there are many Catholics, and I, I like I said I don't have a strong opinion about this, but mm-hmm. uh, the you know one might say on the contrary, uh, I want to just build up my my immune immune system with vitamin C and good diet and all this great stuff, and trust in my immune system to kind of figure it out. Because mm-hmm. that's the job, and that's what they do. What's what the immune system does remarkably well, as it's designed to. Uh, instead of injecting a ex- somewhat experimental, brand new, haven't been totally tested for years, uh, d- literally disease. That's you know that's what a vaccine is. It's a you know a broken down disease or whatever. That's mm-hmm. my understanding of it. And so injecting that into my system, uh, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. That's just a freaky thing it doesn't doesn't make any sense to to do that so how would you respond to that objection i think with coronavirus itself right now that that's a a pretty understandable stance to take because it still is relatively new we're still learning the the true morbidity from it and I think it's very dependent on the age group, the type of counseling you would give. So for a lot of our kids, I would have to really see something convincing come out with a vaccine where I would strongly recommend it, just where we're at right now. The vaccines in general, we face those types of objections every day. Um, a lot of our families opt not to vaccinate for personal or religious reasons. And I, I'm not afraid to, you know, share the stories with them of kids that I've taken care of who have had really devastating outcomes from vaccine preventable illnesses. Um, it's, it's sad to take care of a kid with meningitis or tetanus or something just horrific um, when a $5 shot could have saved that amount of, of suffering. So like I said, in general, I'm very pro vaccine. In this case, I would want to see more data, both from a disease standpoint and from a vaccine safety standpoint before I recommended it to our patients. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were trying to say in the beginning. This is science is about data. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's I, lo- I love what you've said, Ethan, when you said, well, here's what I think right now about the data, but something could change my mind. And that's the kind of non-ideological science that we need is at least just let's look at the actual empirical evidence and we can decide from that standpoint, uh, obviously take into account all of the morality as well as the foundation. Mm-hmm. But um so any other specifics for uh, treatments? I know we've, there's been talk of, uh, like you, you mentioned social distancing, you could talk about hydroxychloroquine. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, hydroxychloroquine it, um, is a, a medication that, that we use here um, for some of our patients. It's uh, an immune modulating medication. So for some of our kids who have various autoimmune diseases, um, it's 
been uh, effective. So it's already in pretty widespread use. And, you know, in a, in a lab, in cells, it seems to have efficacy against um, coronavirus and from cells getting infected. Um, of course, it always is going from the lab to actual human trials. And from the literature that's out there right now, I couldn't recommend it as far as a you know widespread prophylactic use. Um, I think the the number needed to treat um, to prevent an infection just isn't there for the potential uh, consequences and adverse effects. There might be a role for it in critically ill patients, um, in critical care medicine in general. Um, you know, you're usually willing to take on. A, a higher degree of risk and the, the literature isn't always there because they're critically ill patients and it's hard to do a lot of sound research in those settings. So I could see there potentially being a role for it in a, in a small subset of patients with really severe disease. Um, I'm curious to see, there's one trial out there right now that's looking at it kind of as a widespread prophylactic use um, in patients who are potentially at high risk for exposure, so healthcare workers. Um, I think that trial is scheduled to wrap up sometime in, in September, so we'll see what the results are from there, but um, I wouldn't recommend it right now to any of our patients to just get a prescription of hydroxychloroquine and start taking it to prevent corona. Can I ask you a question about um, social distancing? Social mm -hmm. distancing? Um, so we, uh, recent news, World Health Organization affirming what a lot of people were saying, but wasn't affirmed by the right people that unless somebody is symptomatic, it's very hard to, to, um, to spread it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, you know what, in fairness, there were a couple doctors out of New York that mm -hmm. kind of went viral and they said, you know what? Uh, and I don't know why they didn't get, they were not, they weren't like conservative guys. They were kind of liberal, but I don't mm -hmm. think it fit what they, the news organizations wanted. But, but they even said that unless you're around somebody who's symptomatic for a, in a closed space for a significant amount of time, it's very unlikely that you'll get it. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's what those doctors in, in New York were saying from their experience and their testing there as well. So now that we have the world health organization, which, um, give them benefit of the doubt, you know, the, like we said in the, early in the show, um, mm -hmm. and the other research from the different, uh, virologists, et cetera. It seems like basically if you're not sick, uh, and you're just kind of average people with average people living your life. I mean, it's not like we walk around kissing strangers all the time. And, and, you know, I mean, there's very little, there's, it's very infrequent that you are, uh, you know, standing so close to somebody that you're sharing fluids and things. I mean, people just yeah. kind of, their personal space is so is the six feet thing i mean do, what's the point of keeping this up at this point for i mean if people want to because they're sick i get it maybe they wear a t-shirt that says i distance or something like that you know but it's like you know we're standing at the grocery store and it's like we're like cattle standing on these you know these lines and things i mean at a certain point that seems irrelevant to me am i mistaken on that it's just so erratic the implementation i mean you can go to one grocery store and there is no social distancing in place and then go to the gas station down the street and they have it. So it it's become so erratic and, and different in different places that even if it did work perfectly, um, it's just 
it's not being implemented on a widespread consistent basis to to really know so i mean if you're sick you should probably stay home regardless whether it's the flu corona adeno rsv whatever nasty respiratory illness you have um you probably shouldn't be closer than six feet um and unless it's family in general yeah that just makes sense that just generally speaking makes sense you know my kid yeah two years ago we have four children who are still very young and we were on our way to see friends we getting our shoes on with four little kids it's like a marathon it's you know it's it's like d-day every time you have to get the kids in the car and uh everyone's in the car except for clover my little girl and then she just throws up on the floor and it's like well i guess that trips off you know but <laughs> it's just common sense you just we call our friend you know right. turn, off, turn off the barbecue we'll see you in about six days after we've all puked for 24 hours right. you know? <laughs> That's just that's just basic. Wash your hands, you know. Do the vampire cough into your whatever, and just live your life like a normal human being. <laughs> so I want to I want to close the show out. And any uh, viewers, if y'all want to uh, add any comments or questions to to cover at the end, uh, but right now is the the a great feast of the church, Corpus Christi, the body mm -hmm. of Christ, which was instituted. I believe in response to one of the earlier Eucharistic controversies, um, uh, actually before Protestant, the Protestant Reformation, um, St. Thomas Aquinas famously wrote the, I, uh, for, the, for many of the hymns for Corpus Christi, uh, Laudat Zion, uh, which is a, just a fantastic hymn. People say St. Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> get my soapbox here. He's su such a scholastic dry guy, whatever. Just read his hymns, it's so mystical and beautiful. But anyhow, so we've got we've got this response to um, the the coronavirus crisis mm -hmm. among the bishops, and we, here we have this feast, which is all about strengthening the faith of the people of God, the the faithful, strengthening their faith in the real presence of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ in the Holy Sacrament. And I see, the, on the one hand, you have liberal heretical bishops who may deny this dogma itself, and then they're pushing all this community in the hand, whatever. They're taking the opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and they're just, it's kind of a pretext. And I think that there's other, um, I, in, from my view, I think we have, there are many Orthodox bishops, but few courageous bishops. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that combination is, is rare from my view. And uh, so I think you have other good, good-willed bishops who are orthodox, they believe in the real presence, and they just kind of consult their local doctors and try to make a decision based on, and just make a diocesan policy. But mm -hmm. you have a, a complete spectrum in the worldwide church among the Episcopacy as to what to do with the Holy Sacrament uh, to be sanitizer, sanit sanitary. You have masks, you have rubber gloves, God forbid. You've got all sorts of things. So. Um, Ethan, can you speak specifically for, in a, from a scientific perspective, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, I mean, we could even assume that the coronavirus is deadly, you know, very, very bad or whatever, which mm -hmm. I mean, we're kind of, we're conceding basically that it is serious, but, um, what can you speak to a science, scientific perspective on communion in the hand, communion in the tongue, uh, rubber gloves, whatever as well as to the, the, the dogma itself. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this, observing this among the Episcopacy? 
Well, I I want to make sure to stay in my my sphere of of expertise as a layman and um but from what our experience is um just observationally um i can't really see how receiving on the tongue is any bigger threat than receiving in the hand when it comes to uh, the transmission of disease. So if you think of the steps that it takes right now, if you're, if you're only concerned about not catching coronavirus, you care about nothing else. Um, the number of steps that it takes. So when you get up, uh, from communion, you're going up to the front, you have a mask on. And so that your hands are taking the mask off. Maybe there's hand sanitizer there. Maybe there's not there's a good chance that since you've now been sitting in math for an hour that your nose is running, you're sweaty. And so even if you've washed your hands with Pearl once, there's a good chance that you're going to touch your hands and face again. And then you can get up there and most Eucharistic ministers, they're just as likely to touch your hand as they are your tongue. And so again, you have that potential for transmission from hand to hand, just like you do from hand to tongue. And then you are fumbling potentially with a mask in one hand and trying to somehow still receive the Eucharist with the other without dropping it and then putting your mask back on. It just seems like there's a lot of potential for error there um, as opposed to just going up, kneeling down, receiving it on the tongue and going back um your hands never really come close to your face or anything so um i don't know i've never had i've never had a priest touch my lips or tongue receiving communion on the mouth so it's it seems like a hypothetical issue but you could just as easily go and wash his hands if he inadvertently touched your tongue or lip just like he could wash his hands after inadvertently touching your hand as he dropped it in there. So um, again, no one has done a randomized control trial to look at the infection rate of differences in how you receive communion. They have for the, uh, the chalice. Um, there's, a, there's a couple papers out there, but not um, for receiving the host. Okay. So that Latin, traditional Latin mass is the Corona friendly way to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> every, every bishop, if you're serious about coronavirus, institute the Latin mass in your diocese for every parish. On the tongue, no Eucharistic ministers, <laughs> uh, and uh, no chalice. Boom. We solved it. There we go. So, I, and Kennedy, what, what do you think? I, I, do you think that if, if the, if the bishop is imposing, uh, I mean, communion in the hand on the one hand on the one hand you've got communion in the hand uh which to me is is really grave serious matter especially if they're doing i mean in italy they're imposing gloves. rubber gloves this it's is an abs this is a travesty uh on the one hand you've got that which is grave but on the other what if the bishops just wants you to wear your mask all all mass or or you know just use sanit hand sanitizer just kind of lesser things uh, uh, is there any, I mean, 
is there any grounds for uh, disobedience or should you just obey in all cases here? Uh, Kennedy, what do you think? How do you evaluate that? Well, I would evaluate the way Thomas Aquinas evaluates it in his treatise on obedience in the Summa. He goes at the dichotomy between Romans where St. Paul says obey, basically obey your superiors and everything. And then he talks about how in the same time in Acts, it says obey God over man. So how can this be the case? Well, our faith is eminently reasonable. Of course, we can only obey things that are lawful and we can't obey things that are unlawful. Now, should side note there, if we're like a cloistered religious or something, uh, it can be a good thing for us to obey things that are very harmful to us because we accept them as a penance and we pray for others, right? But when you're in the care or the charge of souls, whether you're a spiritual father or a biological father of your children, an earthly father, then you have to take into account taking care of your children. Um, this is why, you know, I obedience is very important, but obedience is under the virtue of justice. Okay. So, and justice is a cardinal virtue and the four cardinal virtues are under the three theological virtues as they are in a theological sense, higher, you know, faith precedes them, you know, etc. So it seems to me that this, it seems pretty obvious that a lot of these measures are due to a lack of faith. It's not to say, like, I know that Eucharistic miracles don't happen. I know that the accidents remain, okay? That's right. I know that Eucharistic miracles don't happen every time there's a consecration. I know that the accidents of bread and wine remain under the sacramental veil. I get all that. But we do believe in the supernatural as Catholics. And we also know that God knows the number of our days. And this is what I've been saying since the beginning. The first video I did, Tim, about the corona thing is I said, the last thing on earth we should be canceling is church. I mean, we don't, and you don't have to receive when you go to church either. Uh, receiving every Sunday wasn't the norm until St. Pius X. Um, and even then, it, it was inserted into the liturgy. It was after at that point. I mean, there's, there's a million and one things we could be doing other than sacrilegious communion. Um, we could just not be receiving. You know, uh, when this whole corona thing started, people say, don't worry, a lot of the great saints didn't receive more than a few times a year. Well, yeah, but they did Vespers and they were, they're talking about, you know, these great saints that were living in monasteries. I'm like, you're right. They prayed 17 hours a day as well. <laughs> like, we're just the same as them, you know? And when they did receive, they would bloody levitate. They were so holy. So like, it's not the same thing. So you don't have to receive, but we should have never stopped mass. Even if it was a socially distanced mass. What did St. Charles Borromeo do in, in Milan when they had an actual plague with, uh, with basically typhus, I think, would be what it would be today? What did they do? Well, uh, he did. He told everyone to go to their windows and look outside, and they did masses at the, at the, at the, at the intersections of, this, of these roads so everyone could have the graces from hearing masses, and they could pray along. And then they actually ironically did sort of a, a quote-unquote socially distanced processions um, because they knew that if people got too close, they'd get infected. So the men stood three meters apart. Uh, but they carried the sacred things. And then members of the same household could do things like carry the, you know, like the four corners of how you carry a statue or whatever. But they did have a sort of rudimentary form of the whole distance thing. But that made sense for a virus where fleas literally leap to get you. So that makes sense for that. But um, uh, but the point is they never stopped the religiosity. There's been a million and one things we could have done. Even if six feet or less is deadly, then let's do a procession at 10 feet and let's appease the wrath of God, etc. So... Communion on the hand as a is is, is dubiously licit, dubiously licit because it was only given a one year trial, 
um, by Paul VI, and it was supposed to be rehashed after that and voted on again. It never was, so that's something to remember. Um, and then as far as treating Christ like he's some sort of disease pathogen, it just makes my skin crawl a little bit. So the scientific reasons seem suspect at best, and the theological and the spiritual reasons, uh, in my opinion, verge on something blasphemous with the way that, at least sacrilegious with the way that we're treating our Lord. So that's my soapbox. As far as disobeying, um, you have to obey God over man. So if you're a priest, you know, if Eric Sammons put out a funny uh, gif uh, when, when this was all starting and it was a picture of Fight Club and, it, you know, like the whole line from Fight Club is the number one rule about Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. Number two rule is don't talk about Fight Club. And he said, the number one rule of if your priest lets you receive on the tongue and the bishop says no, you don't talk about the fact that your bishop, your priest lets you receive on the tongue and your bishop said no. So um, ultimately we have to obey God. It is sacrilegious to treat, to treat Jesus like some sort of sterile instrument. Um, but if that's not the, if you can't do that because it's just not available to you, in my opinion, I would go to mass and I wouldn't receive um, just to not be a part of it. Um, and I'd pray a rosary or something very strongly during that time. And then uh, as far as masks go, I won't bring my kids to a place where they have to wear masks. Um, my oldest is four and a half years old. They don't understand it. I have seen, you know, working in education, I've heard stories about kids where their parents are very, uh, watching a lot of CNN, let's put it that way. And uh, the kids are freaked out. They think they're going to kill grandma if they visit her, you know. And I just, I, do, I just really want, I, I know that there's dangers out there but I just really want to avoid the cycle. I don't want my kids to become Howie Mandel. You know, I, I want to avoid the psychological damage and the germophobia, which is, which is a psychological problem. So I wouldn't go to one where we had to wear masks. I would drive if I had to, to somewhere we didn't. So I'm lucky enough that our local chapel, they're not going to make us do any of that, but not everyone is. Yeah, it's great. I think uh, the obedience is obedience says St. St. John of Damascus is the swiftest route to humility and we should always love to obey obedience is a beautiful thing our lord obeyed the father um so we should always err on the side of obedience especially in doubtful matters when yes. you don't know saint Alphonsus Liguori says when there's a doubtful matter even if it may appear sort of uh doubtfully correct in your opinion you should just obey because our lord our god says uh he who hears you hears me and you should obey so obedience is highly prized by the saints. And so we should always err in the side of obedience. Uh, but if there is a grave cause, which is a manifest evil of some kind, God forbid, by a higher authority that does command you to do something that's manifestly sinful or grave or, or seriously wrong, that's manifest, you know, not on your own authority, not on just saying, well, I, I don't, I disagree because it's my opinion. I have a different yeah. opinion, not on your own authority, but on the authority of certain principles which are being transgressed, uh, in those cases alone, can there be a lawful disobedience to man for the sake of obeying God? Um, I wanted to, uh, let's see, there's a few questions. Uh, Ethan, uh, whoops, that was the wrong one. Uh, Ethan, at what point does caution become idolatry of earthly life? Uh, I mean, you are, you are a physician, you are helping earthly life, uh, at what point does it go too far, in your opinion? We have gone too far. Um, we're there. <laughs> no, so I think as soon as um, 
you know, it's interesting as you, you talk about the supernatural and faith, um, it's, it's easily, especially as you start to talk about it with people, that somehow all of these principles only apply to us because we're Catholic. Like the intellect only works this way because mm -hmm. we're Catholic. And it's like, no, this is just how it works. Like it just is. And so if you are in a state where you have um, completely abandoned contemplation and letting your mind go up to the supernatural and what you are and looking at situations from, from that standpoint and saying, okay, if I, if I could, how, how would God's eye see this current situation now, both in regards to my own mortality, what I'm supposed to get out of it, how I'm supposed to interact with people. If you lose that, hmm. you you're there. I mean, you have now it, you've made your life. You have an attachment to your own, to your own mortal bodily life here. And that, could be a, it seems like a painful one to detach from through the process of purgatory if you're mercifully able to go there. That's a really um, good answer. Yeah, excellent. I love it. I, here's, a, here's another great question here, uh, Dr. Ethan. Um, how do we discern what is big pharma and what is true science in times of crisis? Does Dr. Scott accept CDC and WHO as authoritative? Mm. That's really hard. And I've talked with our staff here and um, is, you know, this is, is very new. Um, and so trying to, at least looking at the, the coronavirus thing on its own right now, not big pharma um, and that whole issue, but just coronavirus right now, um, first to try the best you can to believe that people truly are trying to do the right thing um, to just avoid your own personal bitterness and anger to develop. It, it's so easy and I've seen it happen where, again, people develop an, an attachment to the conspiracy of big pharma and it becomes all consuming and every little inch and minutia of detail they can get their hands on to possibly support their point of view um, which is, is just so, so damaging to the soul. So I would hope that they're able to take a step back um, and realize that it, it is confusing. It's hard. There aren't going to be perfect answers. And if you feel like you are going to be the one who's going to piece it all together perfectly and have perfect insight as to what is going on with the whole situation, um, that you're going to take your attention uh, off of God where, where it needs to be um, and cause yourself, I think, a lot of undue misery and hardship. Um, so that's maybe not um, a best answer about how to discern when or not to listen to them. But um, again, I would just ask that, you know, people try to be charitable when they can in their thought and when they feel themselves being drawn in to anything more negative than that to take a step back um, and then counsel from people that they trust in their own lives. So hopefully that is their physician or priest or, or parent about what to do. Uh, and a quick uh, question kind of specific here. Any opinions, uh, Ethan, on 
intermittent fasting for medicinal purposes? I think uh, intermittent fasting is is great. Again, um, starting if you can make the focus be spiritual, I think you'll have a lot more success. When you look at the literature behind intermittent fasting, just from a medical standpoint, it's really promising. Usually the caveat that they put in the end is that most people aren't able to adhere to it for how it's prescribed or for any length of time after, you know, a, a 12 or 16 week intervention. So um, there is there is good data to support um, really in a multi-system way from cardiovascular health to inflammatory conditions. There's a lot of benefits to intermittent fasting. If you can tie it with um, some reparation for your sins, I think that, <laughs> that you will have a lot longer success and secondarily gain the bodily benefits from it. There you go. Perfect. So, uh, Dr. Ethan, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Do you have any final words, final thoughts on, on all we've discussed uh, to close us out? I think the, the only thing is we open back up. Um, what I've started to see with some families and families that really respect and even in our own is that um, just being aware that for a lot of us, our soul has been bombarded with negativity for 10 or 11 weeks and our common outlets such as the mass and fellowship and time with our family has been taken away from us. And I think there's a good chance that a lot of us unknowingly and have probably developed some pretty significant negativity with how we interact with each other on a high level of skepticism. So I would just ask and pray that everyone, um, as they go back out into the world, um, try to do it with the, the lens of humility and charity um, as we try to learn how to interact with each other again, face to face. That's excellent. That's a great uh, intention for our final, our father. Uh, so let's offer it up for exactly what you said. I think that's a beautiful way to end this. Uh, we need to come back into charity where we are again in the sacraments and communing with our Lord Jesus Christ and with one another in the blessed sacrament. So let's offer up this Our Father and uh, for those intentions. And we want to especially remember the poor and the suffering who are either financial difficulties or are are dealing with the coronavirus themselves and, and suffering from it or any other suffering. Uh, remember your neighbors, people in need, the elderly especially who have been abandoned and secluded themselves. Um, visit them and give them your support. So let's offer up this Our Father for all our brethren. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And it is not temptation, but the rest of all. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you guys.